The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. All right, well, hey, a while back, uh, we got these stickers, and um, we don't have a whole lot more of them, but everybody loves stickers, right? So I was at the spring game, they shot, they shot stuff all over the place yesterday, they're, uh, they're uh, here we go, you know what, there we go. I was going to put them out back, but let's just get rid of them all, okay? Oh. <laughs> all right. This is the uh, way in the back one. Here it comes. There it comes. Don't get a paper cut in the face. That one really sent. Oh. I hit my wife with the last one. That's not really how you want to. It's not really how you want to end that. Hey, we, we, uh, when we first got these stickers, there was a little bit of a, a joke uh, amongst us, like, um, you know, I'm not sure if I want to put that on my car, you know, because what happens if I cut somebody off in traffic, or uh, if somebody sees me kind of speeding and, and, and dashing around, you know? See, we understand intuitively, don't we, that if I put the two-pillar sticker on my car, then I am, in a sense, representing two-pillars church to the world around me. And you might think, like, I don't want that kind of responsibility, you know? I don't want that kind of accountability, you might think, right? Well, listen, Paul, in the text that Brad just read, he, he's gonna, he tells us here to put on Christ. Whoa. I mean, how's that for responsibility? How's that for accountability to have the, the Jesus sticker on the car of your life, hmm? See, this image of putting on Christ, it, 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 really, it really ought to make us realize it matters how we live our life. It matters. Right? There's responsibility as a Christian. There's accountability as a Christian. We're not just free to live however we want to live. There's commands. There's law. There's, there's Christian ethics. There are do's and don'ts in, in this thing. There are shalls and shall nots. In this thing. And Paul gives us some today in our text. I want to sum them up for us under, under two headings. Number one, love your neighbor. Number two, wake up, he says. That's what Paul tells us in this text. It's what he commands us. Love your neighbor and wake up. Now, you might be thinking right now, does it really matter how I live? Does it, does it really matter? I mean, if Jesus saved me while I was still Weak. If he saved me while I was still a sinner, if he broke into my life and justified me, if I am counted right before God now, not because of anything that I've done, but because of what Jesus has done, if there's no condemnation for me now, and there's never going to be, right? if I am bound for the kingdom and nothing is ever going to separate me, like if nothing ever can, if nothing ever will, why does it matter how I live? I thought Jesus paid it all, right? And some of us might literally be asking that question today. Some of us, with the way we live, we're inherently asking that question today. Does it matter how we live? Paul says yes. Okay, because Jesus says yes. The, the Bible says yes. It matters how you live. And here in our text, we're commanded in two summary ways how to live. Love your neighbor and wake up, he says. 
Look at Romans 13, verse 8. Paul begins with this. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. This is a continuation of what he was saying in in verse 7 that we looked at last week. In verse 7, he was saying, pay your debts, right? Live debt-free. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. We're told to live debt-free in these ways. Always paying what is owed. And yet now, he says in verse 8, there's one debt that's always going to carry a balance. Because we can never fully pay it. And that's the debt of love that we owe to other people around us. And therefore, we're commanded to love each other. Then he gives us the reason for the command, second half of verse 8 here, for or because the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now, that's a funny way for Paul to talk at this point in the letter. All right. If, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Romans, or if you've read Romans or thought about you know, Romans lately in your life, you might be thinking, hey, hey hang on a second. Like, I, I remember Romans 6.14 saying that I was no longer under law, but under grace. Or, or Romans 7.4 that said that I've died to the law. Or chapter 7, verse 6, I've been released from the law. And all that's true. But we have been freed from the law as a means of righteousness, as a means of justification. Romans 3, verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. You can't justify yourself. You can't get yourself right by obeying the law and, and, and doing all these things, right? Romans three twenty eight. for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And so we're not under the law for righteousness, We're under grace for righteousness. We've died to the law, been released from the law as a means to being counted right before God. It's why we say that Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled the law for us. He perfectly kept the law. And and by faith in him, his perfect obedience is counted as ours. Friends, that's part of the good news. And, And yet we're told also in Romans 7 that the law is good The law is holy. The law is spiritual. Paul says in Romans 7 verse 22, he says, I delight in the law in my inner being. I see there's a a fundamental change that happens in the human when we become a Christian. We're changed at the the very deep level of our wants, at at the very level of our desires. When you become a Christian, you're given a new heart and a new spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit causes you to walk in God's statutes and be careful to obey his rules, Ezekiel says. Or another way to put it, the Spirit causes you to want to keep God's commands, to want to walk in his ways. And he convicts you when you don't. That's just part of what it means, actually, to be a Christian. Christians desire to obey God out of a transformed heart. And and we're convicted when we realize an area of our life where we're not obeying God. The Spirit produces that conviction. And therefore, when the true Christian reads Romans 13, verse 8, that we're to love each other because the one who loves fulfills the law, we respond in some way, I want to do that. I want to do that. So there's a command love each other. There's a reason because love fulfills the law. And then he elaborates. Why does love fulfill the law? Look at verse 9. He says, for the commandments 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so why does love fulfill the law? Well, because all the commandments are summed up in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's a quote from Leviticus 19. Paul's not making that up, right? Jesus also said the same thing in Matthew 22. Adam read it in our call to worship today. But let's, let's talk about this a little bit. Because right, some people like to take this verse and, and distort it to what they want it to say. So first we realize here that there is a sense in which both the neighbor and the self are to be loved. We understand that. However, notice the command is to love your neighbor. Right? Leviticus 19, and Jesus and Paul didn't say, love your neighbor and yourself. They say, love your neighbor as yourself. What's assumed here is that we love ourselves. And that doesn't exclude things like negative self-talk. Some of you are like, I don't love myself. I hate myself. Like, it doesn't even exclude that. In fact, if we had more time, I'd, I'd actually spend some time and show you how those things are actually forms of self-love too. Martin Luther said it this way 500 years ago. He said, man, with his natural sinfulness, does love himself above all others, seeks his own in all matters, loves everything else for his own sake, even when he loves his neighbor or his friend, for he seeks his own in him. You see, Paul here assumes that we love ourselves, and he says your love for yourself is your example, it's your measuring stick, in a sense, for how you love your neighbor. And so what we have here is this profound commandment. It's the hardest commandment of all, if we think about it. I mean, look what Paul says. He says all the other commandments about adultery, about murdering, about stealing, coveting, and any other commandment, they're all summed up in this one. So if you think this one is going to somehow be easy to, to manage, it's not. It's not. How is it all summed up in this one? Well, think about it. No one wants to be the victim of adultery. No one wants to be the victim of murder or theft. Why? Because we love ourselves. That's why. But if we don't feel the same way about our neighbor being the victim of these things, then we're already guilty of breaking the commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Additionally, it's impossible for us to understand the full breadth and the full weight of this commandment without considering Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, where he said, uh, lust is the same as adultery. Remember that? It's like, ooh, wait a minute, what? Anger is murder in your heart, he says there. He broadens our categories, doesn't he, in the Sermon on the Mount? Jesus also enlarges our understanding of who our neighbor is in places like the parable of the Good Samaritan. He tells us to even love our enemies. Like, are, you, are you starting to see how, how broad and how wide and how all-encompassing this commandment really is? When we fully comprehend it, we begin to understand something of Jesus' vision for the world. Not a world full of self-love, but of others' love of neighbor love, a world full of people looking not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others, and not in generic ways. Like We're not to be content with our good intentions. This is to take shape in real and tangible ways in our lives. So when you lust, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. 
When you honor and, and, and dignify and, and respect other human beings, though, not treating them as objects, but rather as those created in the image of God, you are loving your neighbor as yourself in that way. When you burn with anger, on the inside or the out, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You don't want anybody to burn in anger against you. But when you exercise self-control, one of the fruit of the Spirit, you're loving your neighbor as yourself. When you, when you seek not to tear down, but to build up, now you're loving your neighbor as yourself in this way. When you steal or covet, you're not loving your neighbor as yourself. You don't want to be stolen from. When you give thanks to God for everything he's given to you and to others, when you realize and really believe that he's given you everything you truly need and that he's in the business of doing that for all of us, now we're beginning to understand what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, And therefore, the command comes to us today, love your neighbor. And the true Christian hears that and says, I want to do that. I want to do that. The true Christian hears that and is actually convicted in ways where he or she isn't doing that and brings that to the Lord in confession and seeks to walk instead in repentance. That means change. It's what we do. We're commanded. Listen, it's precisely at this point where we also need to acknowledge another voice in our world today that says, hey, can we just like stop with all the commands? Can we, can we not do the, the shalls and the shall nots anymore? All, all that matters is love. God is love. Right? Just love. Love is the fulfilling of the law. The Bible says so. So love. Stop worrying about all these commands, all these rules. Love knows no rules. Love only knows love. There's no moral absolutes. You can't call something categorically wrong. And what happens then with that way of thinking is that the demand of love gets turned into a hermeneutic through which we begin to interpret the scriptures, especially the commands of the Bible. Oh, yeah, sure, Paul said that, but, you know, it was Paul. He's, Paul had bad days. So we can't take everything that Paul said here, you know. That's, it, we now know that what he said here isn't loving. And so we don't do that any, anymore. We just need to focus on love. Friends, that is not how love functions in the Bible. It's just not. That's not biblical love. The Bible does not pit law and love against each other. It presents them together. Look at verse 10. It says, love does no wrong to a neighbor, and therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Look at this, the commandments, he says, are summed up in loving your neighbor as yourself and love fulfills the law. It fulfills the commandments. It's not either or, we need both. Law and love. Like love is the heart and soul of the commands. And so law separated from love gives way to rigidity and legalism. And yet love separated from law gives way to subjective morality. We begin to define love however we want. Apart from God, apart from his word, love and law need each other. One way to, to think about this imagery is, uh, to, to, uh, it, one way to think about this is to use the imagery of a train and train tracks. All right, you're the train, love is the engine. The law is the tracks. The, the, the commands guide our love. The, the commandments of God lead us to particular places of love. They, they properly constrain our, our love and define our love. God here is saying in his word, if you want to love your neighbor, here's how. Follow my guidelines. Not your instincts, but the inspired word of God. Not the world, 
but the word. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed, Paul says, by the renewing of our minds through his word. So if we really want to love others, we'll obey God's commands. That's the first command of our text, summed up. Love your neighbor. The second now is to to wake up. Look at verse 11. He says, besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. The command here is to wake up. The the reason is because you know the time. The hour has come, he says. Now, I don't know about you. um, Waking up is not one of my favorite parts of the day. Right? Um, I've been getting up a little earlier than normal lately just to kind of get everything taken care of that I need for my body and my soul, you know? And when that alarm goes off, there are days where if there was a sledgehammer in my room, you know, I would, I would put that thing to use. Just smash that. Smash that clock. It's painful to wake up sometimes, you know? Especially if you haven't gotten the sleep that you need. You wake, it feels like you're like kind of coming out of like the water and somehow and like things hurt. You're like, why do, why do things hurt? I've just been laying here for like six or eight hours or whatever. Why do I hurt? Um, most of us, we do not enjoy waking up. But when Paul commands us here to wake up, it's a different kind of waking up that he has in mind. In fact, what we should really be paying attention to is what we're waking up to. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come. But the, the night is far gone. The day is at hand for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Now, if we think about that and what Paul's talking about there, I'd actually like to wake up to that tomorrow, right? Like if my alarm went off tomorrow, the same time it did today, and I opened up my like allergy-crusted eyes and saw Jesus standing in my bedroom because he had returned, I'm up, right? Uh, Let's do this. I'm, I'm ready. That's what Paul is saying here. Wake up. It's time to wake up. Jesus is coming back any moment now. Eternity is breaking in any time now. The evil age is almost over. The day of Christ's return is near. It's just about dawn. If we could look over, Paul said, if we could look over the horizon, the light is, it's, we can't quite see it peeking up over the horizon yet, but it's coming, it's coming up. It's almost here. It's almost here. In fact, it won't be long now. It's nearer now than it's ever been. Those are such sweet words of comfort, aren't they? Really comforting. You're closer to Christ's return than you've ever been. Like salvation, full and final salvation is what he means here. Salvation is nearer now than it was yesterday. It's nearer now than it was the day before that. Nearer now than when you first believed. And oh, how we long for that day. When Jesus will return and restore everything and perfect neighbor love will be manifest everywhere. It's going to be amazing. And we will be so happy to get out of bed for that. But listen, um, that's not actually Paul's point in this text. This is not a take heart passage. 
Um, hang in there, buddy. Jesus is coming back. You know, those passages exist in the Bible and we love them, but that, this is not that. This is not a take heart passage. This is a take action passage. Look at the text again. What does he say? Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. And so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now he's about to elaborate on some of these works of darkness. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. Now, does that seem a little odd to you? If Paul's writing, who's he writing to? Christians. Does, have you ever wondered why Paul has to write something like that to the Christians in Rome? Orgies. Drunkenness? He's talking about parties with like way too much drinking. Like not just drinking. Drinking in itself is not a sin. But drunkenness everywhere in the scripture is a sin. Leaving, leading even to sexual carousing, right? Getting high can be put in this category. What's in mind here is intoxication. Leading to this debauchery behavior. And then he says sexual immorality and sensuality. This is a nice umbrella here that he gives us with these two words covering everything from actual adultery to lust. Sex before marriage. Fornication. Sleeping with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. All the way from that to viewing pornography. Anything really outside of God's design for sex between man and woman in the context of marriage. Isn't it strange? I mean, have you ever wondered why Paul has to write some of this to Christians? Well, some of us in this room know exactly why he had to write that to Christians, don't we? See, some of the Christians in Rome became Christians out of complete paganism. They lived lives steeped in drunkenness and sexual activity and Orgies even, sexual immorality, sensuality, and it took a while, it took a while after trusting in Christ as Savior for their ethics, all right, not just their theoretical ethics, but their functional ones to catch up with their justification in Christ. Many of us in this room know all about that. We call this a missional church, right? We purposely seek to reach people who don't know Christ as Part of the point, guys. It's part of the point. And as we do that, we actually reach people's whose lives are pretty jacked up. And by God's grace, we've done some of that. Some of you are here. Such were some of you, Paul would say to the Corinthians, right? Many of you, myself included, we didn't grow up in the church. Or if we did, it was a janky one, you know? No one was gospeling us from a young age. We didn't have parents who were reading books about gospel-centered parenting and trying to live that out in the home. No one was talking to them about maybe gospel-centered marriage. Some of you, you, you did. Praise God. Most of us in this room, that's not true for. 
We didn't have categories for gospel-centered community. Maybe they didn't have categories for grace. What we had modeled to us instead was very, very different than what we're seeking to live out together here in the context of this church. Some of us, some of us come from really, really broken backgrounds. Like I, I know most of your stories. Abusive homes, extremely unhealthy emotional environments, parents who didn't help you grow up, but instead who you needed to help grow up, and some of you are still having to do that. Some of us in this room come from places of addiction. Like, so if you came in here this morning, you're struggling with that, just know there's people in this room who've walked that path too or are walking it now. You just know that. No one here has got it all together. Places of addiction, perhaps, where sex and drink or maybe even drugs were just commonplace. The objectification of women through pornography. Families ravaged by divorce, maybe sometimes caused by adultery. You found ways to cover over your pain or escape your pain, and they were very unchristlike. Sex and sleeping around, getting drunk, or experimentation were used to feel loved and cared for or valued, or just to have like a little sliver of control. Or, or perhaps some of those things were just normal in your world. They were just normal. Listen, if I've just described even an, a, a bit of your story, <laughs> just know you're a huge reason why we started this church. Okay? Um, because of all this garbage in your life, it's really hard to believe that the gospel is even for you. And one of the reasons that we started Two Pillars is to tell you that it is. You're loved by God and desired by God and counted worthy by God. And he sent Jesus to redeem you from it all. And he wants to restore you. He wants to renew your life. I know all about that. Like I got saved out of, a, out of American paganism. Everything on this list of Paul's here in verse 13, with the exception of orgies, was present in my life. And I lived in a fraternity house, so I know some of that business was going on too. Even after I was cleansed of sin by trusting in Jesus, I remained burdened with the consequences of it all, burdened with the tendencies, burdened with the desires, burdened with indwelling sin in my life. It's taken years of sanctification for my functional ethics, my functional morality to catch up with my justification in Christ that happened like this when I trusted in him. For my life and my choices to be shaped and formed by Jesus and his word. That doesn't usually happen overnight, friends. It's still happening in my life. That's why we call it progressive sanctification. It happens progressively. <laughs> so progressively we begin to experience conviction of sin in our life. I mean, like, praise God, he doesn't reveal it to us all at once, all of our sin, all at once. every single one of us would be in the fetal position, you know? No, he works progressively in our lives, revealing it here, and then a little bit here, a little bit more over here, slowly you begin to realize, oh man, I actually have a problem with that now because Jesus has a problem with that. And I love Jesus. He saved me. You know what, I actually desire to obey him in this area now. See, for some of us, 
There's a, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean this to be condescending in any sort of way, right? But for some of us, there's literally an education that we need when we come to Christ to understand the ways of God. Of what is sin and what isn't. Again, because sometimes a lot of that was just normal in our life. Lists like this one in Romans 13, 13 are actually really helpful to that end. They help us to realize, oh, I didn't know that that was actually sinful, and now I do. Others know exactly what God's Word says about the topic. And you don't need more education, you're in need of conviction. And that's not to wag a religious finger at you, it's just, it's just where you're at. You might avoid sermons like this or texts like this or gospel community discussions this week on texts like this. Why? Because you're doing everything you can to avoid conviction. Do you know what Paul would say to that? Wake up. He'd say, wake up. It's time to wake up from sleep. It's time to wake up from your moral drowsiness, your moral slumber, you've grown content in your sin and you're snoring away in smugness. And Paul says, wake up. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Jesus is going to be here any moment now. Cast off the works of darkness. Put on the armor of light. Make no provision for the flesh, he says. That's interesting and really practical and helpful. <laughs> Make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So, for example, if sex before marriage is a struggle for you, Sexual immorality is what he's talking about here. One of the things he's talking about here, right? One way to make no provision for the flesh would be to not spend time like alone together late at night in a situation where you might be making provisions for your flesh to gratify his desires, right? Like there's, there's no command in the Bible that calls hanging out alone together at late at night like sin. However, we do have something here that says don't make any provision for the flesh, Another, you know, like one way to make no provision for the flesh in that area of your life would be to not live together before you're married. Like I can't tell you how many times I've had to have conversations with people in, in our church who maybe are pursuing marriage, who you know, you're just talking about this. Right? Like, hey, you can't convince me if you're living together before you're married that you're not sleeping together. You can try. I mean, there, maybe there's a unicorn out there somewhere. I'm just not probably gonna be convinced of that. I've lived too much of my life in the world and in my flesh to, to know, all right? And there's no exact Bible verse that says, thou shalt not live with someone before you marry them, right? But here it is again, make no provision for the flesh. And we can also go to Ephesians 5, 3, where it says sexual immorality must not even be named among you. Like no one should even be able to suggest that that's going on in your life. That's really hard to do if you're living together. Are you making provisions for it? Hmm? If lust and pornography is a sin struggle for you, look, we, we want to get to the heart 
of that, like the sin beneath the sin or the wounds beneath that sin that's driving you to that behavior, but also one way to not make provision for your flesh is to get some concrete limits and restrictions on your phone, right? It's very practical. If drunkenness is a sin struggle, maybe you don't have a whole bunch of alcohol in your house. Don't make provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Listen, I hear people all the time say how hard some of these things are. And, and yes, I, I get it from personal experience, guys. I get that. But also, you're making it easy as well by making provisions. Provisions for your flesh. So you'll be able to more easily gratify his desires. It's time to wake up, Paul says. Jesus is coming. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. He's talking to Christians, remember? Those who have been justified. And he says to them, he says to us, cast off these works of darkness that are still in your life. We think about that, right? So having these things in your life must not immediately mean that you're not a Christian. Keeping them there, though. Not walking in repentance and seeking to put them to death will reveal it to be true. So cast them off. Cast off the works of darkness, he says, and put on the armor of light. Salvation is nearer now than when we first believed, so walk properly as in the daytime. Walk in God-honoring, God-obeying, God-glorifying ways. Make no provisions for the flesh. And then listen, just in case you thought I was going to skip over it. Did you notice that he adds to the list of works of darkness quarreling and jealousy? Just in case we start to think that the really obvious and the really visible sins are the only ones that really need to be dealt with here, like those are the really bad people or something like that. No, he says quarreling. Like causing strife and discord. Same category as sexual immorality. Same category as orgies. So for example, making secondary or even more tertiary theological issues of primary importance and causing discord and division within the context of a church or, or, or Christian relationships. That's quarreling. Holding a grudge against your sister in Christ over something that you can't let go. Quarreling in your heart. It's a work of darkness, Paul says. And then jealousy. Or envy, it's translated sometimes. One of the most invisible sins that there is. Same treatment here. Think about all the kinds of jealousy. House jealousy, spouse jealousy. Singleness jealousy, married jealousy. Ministry jealousy, kid friend group jealousy, appreciation jealousy, financial jealousy, health jealousy. Property tax jealousy. I mean, it just goes on, right? Jealousy that comes up in all kinds of relational contexts and is never seen by anyone, never known by anyone except for you and him. It's a work of darkness, Paul says. Same category as drunkenness. And you know the time, he says. The hour has come for you to wake up. 
Cast off the works of darkness like this. Make no provision for your flesh. Put on the armor of light. Put on, verse 14 says, the Lord Jesus. Put him on. You ever watch the, uh, like the red carpet stuff before like the Oscars or something like that? I don't watch it very often. Just, but you know what I'm talking about, the red carpet. What does the interviewer always say to the famous people when they go up to ask them? Eventually they ask, who are you wearing? Right? Not what, but who? And when they say the name, the interviewer always says, oh, it's beautiful. It's stunning. So stunning. Even if it's like the craziest creation we've ever seen, right? Stunning. And we understand, though, don't we, that that actor or that actress, they're representing the designer in some way. Who are you wearing? Again, I don't watch a whole lot of red carpet business, but I've never heard anyone say, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if any of you ever get famous, find yourself there, that's your line, you're welcome, right? That's how we're to answer it. You and I and every Christian in this room, we are wearing the Lord Jesus Christ. We're representing him. Paul says in Galatians 3.27, if you've been baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. It's already on you. We've already got him. It's who you're wearing. If you're a professing Christian, the Jesus sticker is on the car of your life. You have a responsibility. You have accountability for how you live. You are an ambassador for Christ everywhere you go. What that means is that other people in your life, especially non-Christians, are looking at you and making conclusions about what it means to be a Christian. And what's more, they're actually making conclusions about this Jesus himself whom you say that you profess. So Paul says here, put him on. Clothe yourself in him. You've already got him on in one sense, Galatians 3, You have been clothed in Christ in one sense and in another each day, moment by moment, you're to put him on. And notice he doesn't just say put on the Lord. He doesn't just say put on Jesus. He doesn't just say put on Christ. He says put on the Lord Jesus Christ, full title. To put him on as Lord is to acknowledge that he and he alone is Lord And not just in generic theoretical ways. He's the Lord of your life. That he owns you. You're not your own. You were bought with a price, the scriptures teach. You belong to him. He is your Lord. And you live in reverent and humble submission to him and what his word instructs. You're not free to do whatever you want or live however you feel like it. You are continually, progressively bringing your entire life into submission to him for the glory of him, your Lord. To put him on as Jesus is to put him on as the one who came and lived the perfect life. Perfectly loving his neighbors himself and perfectly therefore fulfilling the law, which means for you to put on Jesus is to seek to do the same. To seek to love your neighbor as yourself in the height and the breadth of all that that means, all that entails that we were talking about a little bit ago. Not by your own strength, but by the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit who lives in you now. And then put him on as Christ. 
the Messiah, the Deliverer, the one who came for you to embrace your mess and nail it to the cross, to die in your place for your sins, to forgive you and heal you and renew you and restore you, to do his work in you now, bringing you more and more into conformity with himself, growing you through progressive sanctification into more and more Christ-likeness so that, so that when the hour does come, when the night is completely gone and the day is no longer at hand, but here, we'll hear him say, wake up and we'll rejoice. We'll be so ready. so close, church. It's so close. Like, salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That's good news if we're following after Christ. Like, any moment now, it won't be long now. In fact, it's nearer now than it's ever been. Amen? Amen. Hey, as we prepare to come to this table, the communion table this morning, um, there's, there's one more image that I want to put in your mind. It's related to this. In Exodus 28, we read about Aaron, his high priest. One of the details about his high priestly garments that we're told of is his ephod, and how on the shoulders of the ephod were inscribed the names of the sons of Israel. Do you remember this part? And then also on the, on the breast piece of the ephod were inscribed the names of the sons of Israel. And they were there so that when Aaron went into the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle as high priest, he would bear their names before the Lord, representing them before the Lord. When the New Testament book of Hebrews, we learn, as, we learn about Jesus as the great high priest and how everything the priests do for Israel in the tabernacle, Jesus does for us in heaven. Here's what that means. Here's the image, right? You and I have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ our Lord, the Son of God. And when you believe in him, your name is written on his shoulders and inscribed on his heart. He stands now in the holy of holies in heaven that the tabernacle foreshadowed before the very presence of God the Father himself. He's gone behind the curtain, and just like the high priest in the Old Testament with respect to the Old Testament people, he's not there for himself. He's there for you. He's carried you on his shoulders and bore you on his heart into the very presence of God. He's got your sticker on. He's not ashamed to call you brother, he's not ashamed to call you sister even in the midst of all the mess that still remains in your life, you've professed faith in Jesus, he's got your sticker on. He's your perfect representative, your perfect mediator. And God the Father now looks upon Jesus and he sees your sticker there and he makes judgments and conclusions about you based on who Jesus is and what he has done and what he's still doing. So you don't just put on Christ He's put on you. Jesus isn't just in you. You're in him. And when you have the security that Christ has put you on, you 
by his spirit, can moment by moment put him onto. You know, each week when, when we come to this table, we're reminded of, of this reality that, that we're talking about today, that, that by his body and his blood, he's put us on, the Lord Jesus has. And each week when we come to this table, we in turn put on the Lord Jesus Christ, who on the night when he was betrayed took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Church, we know that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that day is nearer now than it's ever been. Let's pray. Father, by this bread and, and this wine now, would you remind us that we've been put on? <laughs> we have been put on by Jesus. Before we made any progress at all, while we were still uh, a spiritual and immoral hot mess, <laughs> Christ came for us and lived for us and died for us. It really is by grace that we've been saved. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would minister to us here at this table now as we put on Christ. Would you strengthen us and renew us for loving our neighbor increasingly, more and more? And would you wake us up to any works of darkness needing cast it off in our lives as we await Christ's return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.